Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy magazine and everything else that we do, and curator, managing editor, and everything else, Richard Hill. How are you? I, I, I'm here. I, I feel overburdened by uh, activities and work. No, there's, <laughs> it, it is such fun. There's so much fantastic. Uh, I, I just had an email uh, with someone the other day, a friend of mine, and he's just done a new book and he's going to write us an article uh, uh-huh. just to bring it uh, into the magazine form for us. So I just love the way people just contact me or, you know, we just have a chat and, and contributions are made. So it's wonderful. But we're doing something really interesting and not out of left field, but something that people don't think enough about. Who are we seeing today? That's right. We are going, actually, we're going to be staying in my hometown of Brisbane, Australia, which is something different. Normally, we're off in other parts of the planet. <laughs> yeah, normal time zone. Yoo-hoo. Normal time zone, yes. So we're going to talk, talk to Dr. Alina Pribble. Um, she's a internationally educated scientist with expertise in human microbiome research, microbiology, molecular biology, and stress physiology. But today, we're going to talk to her about the microbiome. Oh yeah, this family, this this group of of coexisting life forms that we have in our gut, which are just vital for everything we do, and we know so little about, and we do a lot of things to be bad to it, and there's not so hard to do things to be good to it. I want to find out all those things from Elena. I'm sure she'll have fabulous information. That's right. And we are talking about the gut microbiome because there is this thing called the gut-brain axis. So this is influencing our mental health in ways that you may not have imagined before. And we are doing a documentary on the topic as well. And that's how we got to know Dr. Pribble in the first place. Uh, So uh, we had some great interviews with her on camera. So we thought, ah, let's do a podcast. Yeah, well, that's right, because I'm looking forward to the documentary. I mean, that, that'll have four, five, six, uh, you know, and different labs mm-hmm. and different people and giving you a, uh, giving us a great rounded um, idea. And we'll, we'll have that, you know, in the Academy's education as well. And we'll be putting that out. I, I, it's so exciting. Uh, but for now, we best uh, go off to uh, Queensland. Dr. Alina Pribble, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapies. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Matthew. I'm happy to be here. And uh, uh, it's Richard here as well. I'm very pleased to meet you. I've seen some of your work and some of your other discussions, and uh, I'm very excited to be talking to you directly. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. Very excited to be having this conversation. Uh, There's nothing I like more than talking about the great research that's happening in this field. So could you just let us know um, a little bit about well, who you are and a background and uh, where you're working? Uh, that'll be a good place to kick off. Sure. So my name um, is Dr. Elena Pribble, and I work as a senior scientist at the gut microbiome company called Microba. We're based in Brisbane, Australia. And um, the company is actually a spinoff from a laboratory at the University of Queensland um, that really pioneered the methods that we use to analyze the gut microbiome with more precision than we think any other group out there right now. Now, now I noticed something, uh, Elena, that your 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 Australian accent is distinctly American. Um, 
absolutely correct. I haven't quite managed to get that accent down yet. I've only been here six years so far. Okay, and and was it the uh, was it the excellent work that this company was doing? What what you know what what drew you to uh, to our fine shores? Oh, I, I wish I could say it was excellent work of this company, which I kind of landed in serendipitously. As a matter of fact, what actually drew me to your shores was um, my husband and I worked on fixing up a sailboat for five years in the Bay Area, California, San Francisco. And we finally decided after fixing it up, we needed to take it somewhere. So we sailed it across the Pacific and um, Australia was an easy destination for us because we figured, you know what, here's a place maybe both of us could find work. Um, and very serendipitously, indeed I did, and I was able to hook up with this wonderful group at the University of Queensland that was developing this amazing technology. Uh, that's fantastic. I love it. The idea, you got a sailboat, headed towards somewhere and wanted somewhere <laughs> big enough so you wouldn't miss it. Uh, yeah. But but it, but it, then you've landed in this fantastic company. Tell us a bit about uh, about Microba. How come they're, they're their work is is so advanced. It's, it's really it's it's uh, advanced right throughout the world. It is yes, and it's really down to our two co-founders, Professor Phil Hugenholtz and Professor Gene Tyson. So both of them um, really pioneered the methodology that we're using. What we do is a type of really advanced DNA sequencing that we call metagenomics, and this is where and. Instead of just looking at small fractions of DNA, we actually look at all of the DNA in a stool sample. And this is something that most people don't do. What's easy and what's cheap is to look at just maybe 200 base pairs, something very small. Um, and then you set as a fingerprint to infer who's present in a sample. And what we're doing is we're looking at all of that DNA so we can get a very high resolution picture of who is in a sample and not only who is there, but also what they're capable of doing. So we're actually able to look at all of the genes that make up each of those different microbial species and now understand, oh, the gene to produce the really beneficial short-chain fatty acid butyrate. Or we can look to see that they have genes to produce really um, detrimental proteins that have been associated with poor health conditions. And so this is what brings us to a whole nother level and Phil and Jean were really the two people that actually put the very first paper to use this method. And they also are the people that have been developing a lot of the analytical tools to now carry this method forward and progress it to a point where it is now, which is really great, where sequencing costs have come down enough that this method is more accessible to people now. But the key is that most people don't use this method because they don't have the analytical tools to analyze the data. Um, you're getting, you know, huge magnitude, more data. Uh, using this method than using looking at just, a, you know, a couple hundred base pairs. And so people just don't know how to deal with that amount of data. And that's what Phil and Gene really excel in. Um, a lot of the tools that group use to analyze this data are tools that they've developed. And so when they decided to apply that knowledge into this company, Microba, um, it's really helped us take off and develop one of the leading platforms to accurately be able to estimate who's their gut and also what they're able to do. Yeah, this is so interesting. We we did um, uh, with a, a group I was involved with in relation to uh, the human being. Uh, we did a lot of DNA uh, microarray work to try and uh, assess what was going on, and we looked at the whole gene, which when we were doing the whole of the uh, of the genetic code, which 
uh, it's too expensive for us. We could only do very small studies. But I'm just imagining how much more complex the task is because uh, at least with human beings, you've, you, you know, you've got it sort of pretty much organised, the chromosome list is going through because you're actually dealing with a whole bunch of different species. Uh, we, you know, we, we have this extraordinary sort of party going on in our gut. So it's it's quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of different genes, different chromosomes and different things to to bring into a, a single focus. That's exactly right. Um, if you think about it, the microbial component of our bodies, they actually encode 150 times more genes than our human DNA does. So if you can think about it, you know, like our human genetic code is really kind of set to produce a certain a fixed amount of different types of proteins, but all those different bacteria, like you said, I mean, there's thousands of different types of bacteria, 70% of which we still have yet to be able to even grow in the lab. So we don't even know everything about them. That's, you know, that's encoding a huge array of genetic diversity. And so, yeah, the estimates right now are probably on order of 150 times more different types of proteins um, are encoded in that microbial component of our bodies than our human DNA, which is just mind-blowing. Wow. So how do you, without getting too technical, that sounds like an awful lot of data to be dealing with in any one sample. Uh, how, do you, how do you do that? That's exactly what sets us apart is, so with Phil and Jean's direction, um, and we have a really excellent team of bioinformaticians and biostatisticians, we've actually put together a platform that's very sensitive and very accurate actually being able to look at those whole genomes and map them. So we have um, probably one of the largest, what we call it, the reference database. And so basically we've got a collection of over 28, the genomes of over 28,000 different species. And we're now able to take all the DNA from a stool sample and basically kind of match that against our database. And then we have a very good matching algorithm so that we're very accurate at correctly matching whose DNA belongs to who. So it's kind of, it's the two pieces of that puzzle. It's how good you are at matching the DNA, but also how good is that reference database? Because if you're missing something in there, then you're obviously not going to have a good match. And so that's something that we're also really good at is as we get more and more samples and as more and more samples get deposited into the public databases, we actively, we call it mining, we go through and we actually try to identify any new species and any new genomes we can from those publicly available data sets and from our own data sets and put that into our reference database. And I know that's all getting very technical, but what that really comes down to is the fact that we're able to identify more species and more accurately than anybody else can right now. Brilliant. Brilliant. So, so let's move uh, on now. We looked at the code, the the, the complexity of that, and the, the way you were uh, so brilliantly uh, able to and uniquely able to analyze it, which is fantastic. But uh, get back to those things, which are the functional elements that that we're dealing with in relation to uh, what's happening in the gut, and particularly how that then relates to the brain. So we're looking at these proteins. We're looking at these um, these uh, structures that are created by, uh, by all these and how they help us and how they uh, don't help us. So can you go into maybe a couple of the of the not-so-good ones? Let's start with the not-so-good and then go to the good news of the, of the, of the good. Things. That's a good way. So we end on a high note. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I would say there's multiple. The first thing is that we've yet to discover most of the different types of substances or proteins that our bacteria can produce. But we have identified 
you know, a good number of them and have some of those are really well studied. And so some of the ones that are we know are really negatively impacting, um, especially the gut-brain access, um, one key one is called a lipopolysaccharide. So this is a component in the cell membrane of gram-negative bacteria. Um, and just so you know, like half the bacteria that we have in our gut are gram-negative. But there's a subset of these bacteria that produce a special form of this, hex- this lipopolysaccharide. It's called hexaacylated lipopolysaccharide. And we just call it hexa-LPS for short. But basically, what this protein is doing is it's actually able to activate receptors on our immune cells. There's a receptor called a toll-like receptor 4. Um, it's an inflammatory receptor. And as soon as that receptor is activated, it, it initiates an inflammatory cascade. It's causing your immune cells to produce these substances called cytokines. And these cytokines can then go out into your blood system. Um, they can circulate throughout your body. And we do know from mouse models that these cytokines and that actually that hexa-LPS itself can also get transported out the intestine into your peripheral blood, where it can also interact with your immune cells in your peripheral blood um, and cause this low-grade inflammation. And so together, um, you're getting this influx of what we call these immune inflammatory substances called cytokines. And you also have that hexa-LPS circulating in your blood, and that can actually travel up to the brain. And so we know in mouse models that um, cytok- some of these cytokines and even the hexa-LPS can actually weaken the blood-brain barrier. Sometimes uh, to some mouse models where um, these poor guys were actually injected with hexa-LPS chronically over time, it weakened the blood-brain barrier to the extent that the hexa-LPS could actually cross the blood-brain barrier and cause neuroinflammation in the mice. Now, it's important to say that this is all in mouse models. It's not in humans, so we don't know how this translates to humans. But it really shows us that some of these things are possible, that some of these pro-inflammatory substances produced by our gut bacteria are influencing our immune system, which is influencing um, the way that our body is speaking to our brain. Um, Those cytokines communicate with our neurons. They are transported across the blood-brain barrier. And we also see some of these substances directly interacting with the brain in a negative fashion. So some of the um, hypotheses out there right now, especially for neurodegenerative diseases, is that potentially we see something where you've got a lot of bacteria that are producing this hexa-acylated form of the LPS. That hexa-LPS is kind of prevalent at low levels in the blood. So it's causing this level of chronic inflammation. And over time, Um, that really builds up to a point where your blood-brain barrier gets weakened and eventually um, it crosses over and can cause um, some of these neurodegenerative diseases. Now, that's just one of the working hypotheses that hasn't been proven yet, but it's really compelling um, to think that potentially one of the missing areas that we haven't looked at enough yet in the cause and potentially preventative measures and treatments for neurodegenerative diseases is looking at these substances produced by the gut microbiome and how they're involved. Now, now we'll, we'll, we'll get to some, some of the goodies in, in a minute, but if we could just sort of uh, punctuate this in the middle, because, of course, what you're talking about there is a blood pathway. So that's that direct, tra- <clears throat> direct transportation of, of proteins through the system. And, of course, people need to remember that, uh, just be reminded that it's not just these uh, lipopolysaccharides that are, that are causing issues with the blood-brain barrier. We've got to, they're just joining up with other things, you know, like excessive sugar and all kinds of interesting things that are going on. 
But um, what about the other pathway? Because I know the, the nerve pathway, that, that direct sort of interaction and uh, uh, the vagus nerve obviously must be involved in, in this connection because that's the, that long nerve. What's going on in the communication with these, um, with these sorts of influences from the nerve point of view? A lot of these, the, a lot of the nerve cells are going to have some of the same receptors. Um, and so I'm not sure about the inflammatory receptors. I can tell you a lot of research that has been done with the vagus nerve receptors is um, actually kind of on the good side is with the short chain fatty acids. Um, so that's another group of proteins that our gut bugs can produce. But basically, um, I think on the detrimental side, one of the things we'd really be looking at is how the cytokines are actually influencing um, the nerve cells. And so we do know there's like a bi-directional communication between the brain and the gut. And so as you mentioned, um, it's the vagal nerve and the enteric nervous system that are really involved with that. And so a lot of the signals that are coming from our gut are actually activating receptors um, on those nerve endings um, and the enteric nerve endings and actually sending those signals up to our brain and sending messages to our brain. And the vice versa, we also see the reverse where, you know, the brain can be sending signals back down to the gut. Um, and that can also be influencing what's happening down there. Yeah, so you'll be pleased to know we, we've actually dedicated a, a whole section of our new book to these different brains and, and, and interactive functions. So hopefully people will, will be able to educate themselves, educate themselves up. So what do you think, Matt? We should get to some good news before yes, our good. audience you know, give, up the, give up the gut. There is uh, good news, yes. There's a lot of good news. Um, um, and I think probably the most research has been done on some of the good proteins that our gut bacteria can produce. Um, and these are, these are called short-chain fatty acids. And so there's three primary ones that our gut bugs produce. Uh, it's called acetate, propionate, and butyrate. And primarily, these are produced when we eat fiber. And so that's a key thing to sneak in here is that, you know, the fuel that's feeding our bacteria that's producing all these different compounds is basically what reaches our colon. And what reaches our colon is going to be fiber um, that our body is not able to absorb. And it can also be excess protein um, or excess fat that comes down there. And what we do know is that when you feed your gut bugs fiber, for the most part, they're going to be producing these beneficial short-chain fatty acids. Now, what's so cool about these short-chain fatty acids is we know that um, at least for two of them, butyrate and propionate, they're actually really good at stimulating some cells in our gut that are called enterochromaffin cells. Um, they're good at stimulating those cells to produce things like serotonin, peptide YY, and also glucagon-like peptide 1. And so we do know about 70%, I think, of, or is it, no, I'm sorry, it's over 90% of the serotonin in our body is produced in our gut. And we've actually seen in mouse models that our gut microbes are actually responsible for a lot of that serotonin production. If you have a germ-free mouse model, it's not going to be able to produce the same amount of serotonin as a mouse model that has an intact gut microbiome. So um, our cells are really counting on the gut microbes to be producing these short-chain fatty acids, which are stimulating these cells to pump out more serotonin. And also those other hormones, the peptide YY and the glucagon-like peptide 1, we know they're used in appetite regulation. Um, also, they can be um, I think they're involved with mood um, and other behavioral um, conditions as well. And so regulation of these can be really important. And we know that, yeah, these short-chain fatty acids are playing a key role in that. Yes, it's important that the neuropeptide Y and the, the YY, because they have a direct relationship in the spinal 
the spinal cord and, and interactions there in relation to a lot of different messages. But um, everybody go go look that up. Uh, the, the 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 thought that actually the question and when I was listening to your other work with Matt on the on the video when we talk about short chain fatty acids and we're we're recommended for that for eating foods like uh, like oily seafood and various what's that what's that that dietary intake of short chain fatty acids got what does that play in the story so I think it's it's really I'm trying to think about foods that actually contain short chain fatty acids. Um, I'm not really sure. For the most part, the short-chain fatty acids are produced by the gut microbes. Acetate right. is one that we can produce in our human body. Um, you can take supplements that have these short-chain fatty acids, but the key is that a lot of times when you take it as a supplement form, um, it's going to get absorbed higher in your – it'll be absorbed in your small intestine. It's not going to be the source in your colon. So I know there were studies showing – I think it was in mice, and they were looking at one preservative – I want to say, oh, I'm sorry, don't put me on this. It was either butyrate or propionate. I can't remember which. But when they fed the mice that supplement, it actually caused these mice to become obese. And it was a more of a okay. detrimental effect. And they really showed that, if, it, however, if instead, if they inserted that supplement rectally, it had a completely different effect. And it caused those mice to, to not become obese and to stay at a good weight. And so... Um, the take-home from that paper was really that where the source of that short-chain fatty acids is very important. Um, if it's taken orally, it's going to be used in a different part of the body than if it's produced endogenously by our gut microbes. And so what we really like to promote is that the best way to make sure you're getting that good endogenous production of the short-chain fatty acids is to actually just be eating the foods that's going to fuel those back to produce it. And so that's really eating a diverse diet of different types of plant-based fibers. So just trying to get, you know, as many different types of fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and grains into your diet as possible. Fantastic. So, yeah. Obviously, diet is a very big component of regulating and modulating the gut microbiome. What other aspects of our lives does regulate or modulate the gut microbiome? Good question. There's actually a large number of factors that can influence our gut microbiome. So diet has been shown to probably be the most influential factor. But apart from that, we also see medication use can be highly influential. So especially if you take um, broad-spectrum antibiotics, that can, of course, just wipe out everybody who's down there. Um, so making sure that, you know, when you take them, it's absolutely necessary. Um, you also have environmental exposures. So depending on, you know, if you work with hazardous chemicals, if you're exposed to a lot of air pollution, that can impact your gut microbiome. We see smoking plays a very large role in the gut microbiome. You can look at the gut microbiome of people who smoke versus people who don't smoke and very concrete differences between the two. There's a huge number. Exercise is also playing a role. Stress management is playing a role. The nice thing is that most of these influential factors are things we can control. And I think that's the best take home from all this research is that unlike our human DNA, which you can't change, you're stuck with, you know, an increased risk of certain disease based on your genetic profile, your gut microbiome is changeable. And so most of these factors that are really influencing who's living down there, like your diet, your exercise, your stress management, the medications are things that you can change. And so you know, and it's kind of what we already know, you know, if we can properly manage our stress, get enough sleep, exercise regularly, eat a healthy diet, um, you're probably going to be doing pretty good. 
Yeah, I was, was going to ask that the, the the basic lifestyle thing where you've already done that, you know, sleep, exercise, all all these um, natural, rhythmic, and uh, uh, metabolically metabolic encouraging uh, activities, which we've been doing for uh, a million years, uh, that we've kind of stopped doing now. Clearly, they need to be. I mean, it's it's everywhere, and uh, the first thing a therapist should ask anybody is what's your sleep, what's your diet, and what's your exercise. And so this is very important, uh, clearly with the gut as well. That's that's fabulous. But I just wanted to touch on that thing where you you're going and you're talking about the actual effects. We talk about anxiety and depression. Are these specifically the sorts of um, uh, emotional responses that occur because of this when there's a negative interaction? We don't know. Unfortunately, we can't say causation yet. So all of the studies so far, it's only been association. So we know like when we look at people with an oppressive disorder, they definitely have a different gut microbiome to people that are healthy. But we don't know, is it the depression that's causing the change or is it the gut microbiome that's causing the depression? Um, unfortunately, we can't say that yet. But we do see, you know, strong indications that, you know, like people that have um, anxiety disorder or major depressive syndrome have lower levels of ACA that can produce those beneficial short-chain fatty acids. And which would lead rise to the fact that if you're not producing those beneficial short-chain fatty acids, then you're likely not promoting that serotonin production gut as much as somebody that does have that population of bacteria. Um, There's a lot of really compelling links like that. Um, we still need to investigate them further in humans. Um, they've been very well studied now in mice models, but we have to translate those findings to humans. Um, but we do see other studies that show, if you just look at, um, there was one study that was looking at p- patients that were being admitted into treatment for major depressive disorder, and they took a baseline gut microbiome sample, um, and then they took a gut microbiome sample when they completed treatment, and they were able to develop an algorithm to predict who was going to reach remission at the end of that treatment period based on that baseline gut microbiome sample. Mm. So there were key bugs in that in a people's gut microbiome that were indicative of people that had ability to be able to respond to the treatment um, and go into remission from depression. Uh, that's, that's really cool. Now, um, I've used the testing kit that, um, that your company has produced, Insight. Can you just give us a little bit of a, uh, an idea of what that kit is all about and how that might be useful to mental health professionals, possibly mm-hmm. through a referral to a, a dietitian or someone like that. Yeah, I'd be happy to, yes. So what our um, reports provide is a very detailed look at exactly which species are in your gut microbiome and which of these key substances that have been linked to health your gut microbes are able to produce. And we compare that against a healthy cohort. So we've got a group of about 500 people that have met very strict criteria in terms of, you know, not having any major health conditions, exercising regularly, eating a healthy diet. Um, There's probably about 20 different criteria they have to meet. Um, But nonetheless, we've, over the last few years, we've got, we've built up a cohort of five of these. And so um, we've developed what we call our healthy reference. So we compare all the readings against that healthy group. And what you can do with this now is we provide levels, um, the potential for your gut microbiome to produce those important short-chain fatty acids, so the things like acetate, propionate, butyrate. We look at other substances that might be detrimental, so like that hexa-LTS, also things that we know have been linked to like heart disease, trimethylamine, um, things that have been linked to inflammation. 
And we write all of that out. So it's really cool because you get a readout of what the healthy group levels are and what your levels are, so how you compare. And then you can actually click on each of the substances, the names of them, and you get a description about what's currently known about them in the scientific literature. So like for butyrate, it'll tell you that, you know, that's been shown to promote serotonin production. It's also anti-inflammatory. Um, it helps maintain your intestinal cell barrier, all these amazing things it can do. It has links to the literature. And it also tells you that if you're low, you can some different interventions you can do to help improve that. So we know from the literature, there's been interventional studies showing that um, increasing your intake of resistant starch and or pectin can help increase the production of butyrate by your gut microbes. Yeah. If you're low in propionate, there have been studies showing that increasing levels of beta-glucan can increase the production of propionate. Um, and so for most of those substances, there's some type of dietary intervention that we suggest that's been shown in the literature um, to help promote production or reduce production of those metabolites. For healthcare practitioners, um, it can be very useful because once they get familiar with some of these key bacterial substances that are linked to health or disease, um, they might know what they're looking for. They might want to hone in like on that short-chain fatty acid section. Um, they can look at their patient's report and see what those levels are like. And if they're not at that healthy level, they can you know, recommend some dietary interventions that their patient might be willing to try to see if they can improve it. And what sort of feedback have you had by clinicians using the test and then implementing some changes? Overall, it's been surprising. It's been very positive. I don't want to say surprisingly positive, but um, it is the, the one drawback is there's a lot of data in these reports. And so we usually recommend a clinician on their first time going through the report. They call us um, and we will schedule an appointment with one of our, we call them um, microbiome coaches, but they're registered dietitians um, that are very well versed in the report. Um, and they'll spend a good 40 minutes walking you through each of the different components of the report to make sure you're getting the most out of it. Um, I think for the most part, it's been very positive once clinicians understand how the report works, but there's a little bit of a learning curve um, to be able to get the most out of the report because there's so much information at first, it can be a bit overwhelming. But once we break it down together, um, it becomes quite simple. And we have a large number of clinicians now that really depend on these reports and find them incredibly useful, especially um, for some of their hard to under, some of them are more difficult patients where they've tried a lot of other testing and nothing's really shown up. Sometimes they do a gut microbiome report. Um, they'll see key species, key types of potentially pathogenic species or key substances that are really out of range um, that they can address. And a lot of times that's actually helped. Yes. And I, I mean, I know I've got uh, a couple of clients who... Um, uh, who are working with nutritionists as well, and, uh, and they have definite uh, issues. I mean, a part of the, they've got their mental health issues, but they've also got uh, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, and they've got a, a couple of other things which are, make it quite obvious that that something's not going not going well in the gut area. And uh, uh, I don't know whether they've actually done the, the, the tests uh, with you, but I know that um, they're terribly comforted by the fact that they're they're being considered not just for what what's going on between the neurons, but, you know, what is going on in the broader story around the body. And, and so you guys are just directly contributing to this and, and, and creating a, you know, putting a service that's available. It's wonderful. Exactly. And then hopefully, you know, this is something that we're using our own data to continually 
make it better and better. And as we're learning more about this area, as more research comes in, we're immediately incorporating that into our reports as well. And so we're really, um, you know, changing the report as the research gets more and more ahead. So this is a really great resource for people to start using because now they can get that better holistic um, understanding of a patient, you know, being able to look at exactly like you said, not just what's happening between the neurons, but potentially what's happening down in the gut, how that might potentially be influencing um, what's happening elsewhere. And what are you looking forward to sort of moving forward with your research? Well, I think one of the most exciting areas we're doing right now is actually looking at how the gut microbiome is actually involved in the response to different treatments. And so we know, um, for example, in cancer, we'll see that patients, some patients respond to specific treatments for cancer and others don't. And there's actually a difference in the gut microbiome between patients that respond and patients that don't respond. And so one thing that's really exciting is you can now actually look at those differences, see what's missing, and develop a microbiome-based treatment to basically fill in the gaps of what's missing. Um, and with that, hopefully see an improved response. And so there's number, there's a large number of microbiome-based drugs that are currently in clinical trials. Um, actually, I think one's going to be getting approval very soon to treat Clostridium difficile infection, but it's really looking at just how do you fill in the gaps in somebody's gut microbiome where key important species that are probably um, performing some very important functions are missing. And by giving that to patients, um, you can actually help change how the immune system is reacting, how metabolic system is working, whatever that disease condition is doing, you actually help influence that by giving your gut the right microbes. So it's a very exciting area. I think probably in the next five to 10 years, we're going to be seeing a large number of microbiome-based treatments hitting the market and hopefully starting to address some of these large holes that we have right now for clinical treatments. I just want to make a prediction that that as they do this work that's related to cancers and various other uh, uh, illnesses with throughout the body that 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 those people will have a stronger mental state and have uh, that there will be a coincidental thing. So we'll predict that. So that'll be the next bit of research after you've done all that, Elena. Definitely, and I have to say, I mean, looking at the gut-brain axis is a huge area of research right now. And it's just that it is so much more complex than looking at something like cancer or inflammatory bowel disease. And so it's just going to be take a little bit longer to advance this area. But it's definitely on the list. And it's definitely, I imagine, I would say a 10 years, definitely, we'll be seeing some cool microbiome-based treatments for various mental um, and neurodegenerative disorders hitting the market. Awesome. Very exciting. Well, thank you so much for dropping in and having a chat to us uh, about this very important topic. And uh, we'll be sure to point everybody to Microber and the wonderful work that you're doing there and the Insight Testing Kit and all of that. And so I'd encourage our listeners to to get in and have a, have a good look. Is there anything we've missed? I guess maybe just a final push that eating a healthy diet, you can't understate the importance of that. Um, I think a lot of clinicians often go right to the medicines um, and just, you know, really thinking about looking at the diet and as Richard was saying, you know, exercise, stress management, the sleep, looking at that whole big picture because it also plays a really important role. 
Well, that's something that psychotherapists can really uh, uh, participate in uh, as you guys do this this fantastic uh, detailed research and, and, you know, sort of keep pouring out this fabulous information for us. But uh, this is fabulous and I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for being with us, Elena. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll see you later. Matt, that was so interesting. There's yeah. there's so many things going on. I, I just in that last little bit. I mean, I, I think the, the there was a, a valuable point going going mm-hmm. in there. There's, is that we we need to do this research on on the mental health interaction, that gut brain axis, but it's kind of being pushed a little bit to the side because of the complexity of yes. the brain. Uh, yes. So, uh, so this sometimes needs to be. We need to be mindful of this. That that approaching and uh, engaging in mental health is not an easy task because the brain uh, just makes it a, a difficult task. So uh, we've got to keep our focus. So this is a great yeah. start. Yeah. Let me just encourage uh, all of you mental health professionals out there, not only are we trying to grapple with the brain, the central nervous system, which is one of the most complex, well, probably the most complex system that we know about, um, but we're <laughs> we're adding more complexity with these gut microbiome, you know, what did um, Dr. Pribble say, 150 times more genetic material there than we actually have in our human genome. I mean, that's a lot of data. There's a lot of stuff, but the saving grace of this, and the, what we talk about thinking in systems. So mm. rather than having this incredible uh, kind of confusion about what's the cause, what's the effect, what's you know doing these lines, mm-hmm. just remembering there are fundamental principles that all these things form themselves around. And when we start to grasp those fundamental organizing principles, uh, we're going to see, uh, like, like uh, Elena was saying, there's a lot of serotonin produced in the gut. So we need to have that uh, process organized and functional there the enteric system produces a lot of uh, a lot of that and that that serotonin is used through the body and it's also used in the brain and they use it in different ways so we don't have to learn all the detail although we need to know about the detail but we can get start to get this picture of how the whole system flows and needs to interact and we need to care about all elements and this is what you've been saying, Richard, about being the 21st century therapist, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And that's why we use that term. The 21st century therapist will be involved in the in the, the flow and the beauty of the body, uh, realising it has a few demons. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Richard, a pleasure as always. Thanks for dropping in and uh, listening. If you uh, like what we do here, please jump on to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net and become a subscriber. Love to have you part of the tribe. Otherwise, we will catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to the scienceofpsychotherapy.com.